to the Clan McKenzie podcast. Welcome to the Clan McKenzie podcast. We're glad to have with us this week Josh Pettit with the Alistair McKenzie Institute here to talk about this great golf course architect. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate you having me on. You're not a McKenzie. So what's your interest in Alistair McKenzie? Well, I am a golf course architect and I've been in the golf industry for 24, going on 25 years. Um, And I coincidentally grew up next to an Alistair McKenzie golf course just north of San Francisco, uh, a golf course called the Meadow Club, which was his first golf course he designed in, in America. Oh, wow. Beginning in 1926. And um, I began working there when I was very young and helped out on their maintenance and construction crew. And they began doing a golf course restoration project um, to restore the course back to how it had originally been designed because it had changed a lot over the decades. And um, I just fell in love with that process of, uh, well, just the whole process of of construction and design of a golf course, but then specifically the restoration process, uh, which involves, you know, a lot of research to try to document how the the course originally was and then how it's changed and then figuring out how we can bring it back to that um, while still including, you know, like modern infrastructure needs and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I became very fascinated in that and that led me to pursuing a career in golf course design. And then since then I've worked on several other McKenzie restoration projects at different golf courses. And um, that's what just got me super fascinated with him, you know, as a, as an architect in his career. And I began traveling, try to study every golf course I could find that was designed by him. So how many did he have? I mean, I've read one thing that he had somewhere between the years of 1918 and 1934, over a hundred golf courses. Is that, is that true? It's hard to put a number on it. And the reason why is because there were courses that he built from scratch that were what we term a new build. And he did a lot of those. And then there was a lot of courses he did that were renovations of prior golf courses that weren't very good to begin with, or um, maybe the only nine holes originally, and he converted them to 18 holes. So he did a lot of renovation work. And then he also did a lot of consulting work. And so it gets murky because in marketing material that he would put out, he would say, you know, consulting with all these golf courses. And sometimes it was unclear how much, if any, of his ideas did they actually incorporate to the golf course? So there's some lists at some point that that amounted to like 300 or something, which is way, way too high of a number. It's definitely not that high. Um, 
and then there's you know there's courses he designed that don't exist anymore yeah and there are courses he designed where he did a plan for them and they never got built hmm. so it's kind of hard to put like a real number on it I, you know i haven't tried to figure out exactly what that number is but it's it's somewhere in that 100 range i would say yeah i mean as you mentioned that there's a lot of golf courses and you, it's probably the case with a lot of architects that come up as you research golf architecture and you come across a lot of famous names not so many have sort of the the list of accolades as he has uh, augusta national cypress point royal melbourne um pasta tiempo yeah pasta tiempo i'm hearing that this is going to be world class when it gets restored back to its original condition well it already was world class okay <laughs> we don't need to go down a rabbit hole there uh okay but yeah no it, it pasta tiempo was world class and and still is and, and will be um they're doing some things to help modernize for turf conditions and other you know there's things we don't really need to get into but um but it was is one of his best courses for sure and he actually fell in love with that area santa cruz which is you know a little bit south of san francisco it's kind of in between san francisco and monterey on the california coast and that's where he ended up living for the last four years four four or five years of his life before he died in 1934. And he had a house actually there on the sixth hole at Pasta Tempo. Oh, really? I recently visited, I, I got a tour from the, from the owner and spent several hours with her in, in his old house. So that was kind of neat. That is fantastic. So were you able to, uh, did they have any remnants of anything Alistair McKenzie still, or was it pretty much? They don't, they have a few photographs that they, people have given them. Yeah. Um, I since given her some stuff as well. I gave her a few art prints that I have and cool. gave her a copy of my book. And um, she, the, the owner of the house inherited it from her parents and she's just kind of recently gotten interested in the history. Um, but I actually recently, not from her, but from somebody else, I, I acquired Mackenzie's golf clubs, his Hickory golf clubs from the, 19 teens and 1920s That's and awesome. so um that was a pretty neat find and i actually brought them with me down to pasta tampa recently to show some people there and i showed the the woman that owns his house now i showed her and she was just really blown away it was pretty neat so it's like i brought his clubs back to his house you know like 93 years later or something yeah so it I guess something else that was fascinating in, in studying about him was how, you know, he got golf clubs, but I guess he wasn't known as a great golfer. And that's kind of unusual, supposedly, for golf architects. That's that's true. Very keen observation, by the way. <laughs> um, and actually, maybe it sounds counterintuitive to people that aren't really into golf, but actually, that's one of the things that I think made him such a great architect. Oh, interesting. Um you know, the, yeah, most of the, most of the architects in those days, and then also recently have been very, very good players, uh, former professional golfers more recently. And th there's been some great architects that have been very good players as well. 
but they tend to have a very narrow perspective of the game of golf coming from their skill level. And it doesn't translate all the time into designing a course that plays well for all skill levels of golfers. And so I think that's one of the things that helped McKenzie so much is he was, yeah, like an average golfer most of his life. And, you know, he, he got decent, he got down to single digit handicap. Did he really? At the very end of his life. But at, at the, at the best, he was like maybe a seven or an eight handicap, which is nowhere near professional. Yeah. Uh, which allowed him to see the game from kind of like a beginner's perspective you know, an average golfer's perspective. And then he also had a lot of friends who were very good pro golf, you know, pro golfers of that era that he talked with a lot and he would talk golf design and philosophy with these people. And so he had this very, very, I think, comprehensive, well-rounded perspective. And that fed in his, into his ability to design a great golf course that would be good for all skill levels, all skill levels uh, of golfers. So how did he get into, how did he get to this place where he's a, a, a golf architect? I mean, you know, you can do some research on him, find out he's a doctor. He's known as the doctor. Um, the good doctor. Or how does he get to be this great golf designer, golf course designer? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good story. Um, you know, he really had three main careers. He, you know, he's a bit of a Renaissance man, had a lot of interests and is very, uh, you know, on one hand, very artistic minded. On the other hand, he was very scientific minded, um, being a doctor. And, you know, he grew up as a, in, in a family of doctors. His father was a doctor. Two of his siblings were doctors as well. And um, he had a medical practice. He was a physician. But then the Boer War broke out and he went to South Africa and he was a surgeon in South Africa. And he observed the Boers who were basically fighting guerrilla warfare. That's what we would describe today as guerrilla warfare. And in those days, you know, that was very, very unconventional. Yeah. And um, they had all these brilliant camouflage tactics that they, that they employed. And he was a very keen observer of this and was very interested and fascinated by their use of camouflage in manipulating the landscape to do different things, to trick the eyes of, him their enemy and took a lot of notes on this and, and he developed this deep fascination with the subject of camouflage and he became a camouflage um and later in the in the first world war in the great war he was uh, you know in in charge of what was called the british school of camouflage and he was an advisor in building military like trench bunkers you know like in in france primarily um, and really, you know, he would say that most of his seniors didn't really listen to his ideas. He was kind of thought it was like kind of a quack, but, um, essentially it was like him going back to the Boers and saying like, look, they, these guys were brilliant in the way that they manipulated the landscape in very natural ways that would deceive the enemy. And, um, so after the Boer war, he, started thinking a lot in terms of, well, how can you apply a lot of those same principles of camouflage to golf design? Because that, that was right, right at the point in his life where he started getting more interested in playing golf a lot. He, he wasn't 
a very avid golfer when he was young. Um, but he started playing more after the war. And, and in, in those days, golf was sort of, it was booming, but all, mo most of the golf courses, the new courses were being built inland on sort of flat, boring kind of featureless land. And he studied a lot of the best courses that were all links courses. They were on in the sand dunes by the sea. And he started thinking a lot about, well, how can we try to replicate these neat features that were really developed by mother nature? And how can we kind of bring those ideas into building similar types of golf courses inland on these boring sites? And the way to do that, he figured was to take these kind of flat sites and manipulate the landscape in all these different ways using these camouflage techniques that he picked up on in South Africa to deceive golfers, to deceive the eye. And, and sort of his main objective was to try to make a golf course. And this ties back to what we were saying earlier about him not being a very good golfer is he was trying to uh, design a golf course that would look to the eye more difficult than it actually played. Oh, wow. So he was playing all these mind games with you, all these like visual trickery type of techniques where you'd stand on a tee box or hitting an approach shot into a green. And uh, whether you're consciously or subconsciously, it was affecting you and you were getting this perception that it was way more of a difficult shot than it actually was by, by way of him manipulating the landscape to, to play all these tricks. And so um, he was sort of the first guy, him and another guy named Harry Colt were sort of the first two guys to, to do that. Um, and then so starting in 1906, he was a founding member of a golf course called Allwoodley, which is in Leeds in England. And um, he was so interested in this idea of camouflage and golf design that he was a total amateur, but he came up with a design for the golf course and he convinced his fellow founding members to let him be their architect, essentially. Oh, wow. And sort of the way that happened was he um, he was pitching them all these ideas. He did a, a routing plan for the property that they had bought and some sketches. And, you know, he, he had all these really interesting ideas and they were enamored, but they were a little sort of suspect at the same time. Like, well, you, do you really know what you're doing? These are some fascinating ideas, but maybe we should seek out some professional help. And like I said, in that in those days, this is 1906, there were very, very few what would be considered professional golf architects. And the main guy at the time was named Harry Colt. So they said, well, all right, let's, let's see if we could get Harry Colt involved as sort of an advisor and just sort of sign off on your ideas and make sure that we're, we're doing everything correctly. So Harry Colt becomes involved and he meets Mackenzie at his house in Leeds and goes into his office and is blown away because Mackenzie all over his office, he has like photographs and sketches and aerial photos and all these different drawings. And he had made a very, very in-depth academic study of golf course design. And so Colt was like really impressed and they got on really well from the get-go and they, they saw eye to eye philosophically. And, um, and Harry Colt said, yeah, you know, well, I think, you know, he's very capable of designing this and his ideas are very good and sound. 
and uh, and he kind of gave a stamp of approval and was sort of loosely involved as an advisor. But it was essentially Mackenzie's first golf course that he designed, and it was very successful right away. And so the following year, um, a group of people just down the street got together and formed another club called Moortown. And they hired McKenzie to design their course. And that became, that was his second course. And that just, that really kicked off his career. And then the word kind of started spreading around the UK that, that this guy, Dr. McKenzie, was pretty good, had, had these very interesting ideas and was, you know, very artistic. And um, so at the same time, he was still practicing medicine. And, but then soon thereafter, he realized, well, he, he thought to himself, you know, I can do more, I can have more of an impact. I mean, this is really the way he thought about it. He, he thought he could have more of an impact on society by designing and building golf courses than he could by being a doctor. Interesting. So he, you know, closed down his medical practice and became a full-time golf course architect up until the great war broke out. And that's when everything kind of was put, put on pause and, and he went back into the military and was, you know, a captain and, um, and he was yeah in charge of what was the British school of camouflage. And he was an advisor on designing and building military trenches for not a doctor during the world war. He was not not a doctor at that point. Yeah. He he wasn't practicing as a, so in in the, in the Boer war, he was, he was a physician, he was a surgeon on the front lines and the great war, world war one, he was not practicing as a doctor. He was advising on the construction of trenches, military trenches. So was it after, was it after the war then that he, because you can read about this, um, suppose it's some kind of a contest for Country Life magazine where he submits a potential design for a for a hole. And is that when is that after the war or was that before the war? That's actually like at the outset. That's 1914, which is okay. when World War broke out. Right. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up because. So from 1907 to 1914 or so, he established a very good reputation in the UK as a golf course architect, but nobody in the States knew who he was. Okay. So the guy who was the prominent architect in those days in the US, his name was Charles Blair McDonald. And he was building this golf course in New York called the Lido. And he, I don't know if it was his idea, um, but somebody came up with the idea of as sort of a marketing ploy, they would run a golf course design competition in a magazine and uh, for someone to design a hole and they, they would choose the winner and they would try to incorporate that winning hole design into his golf course that he was building. See, So McKenzie read this in country life magazine, which was a prominent publication in, in England and came up with a concept for a hole and did a plan and submitted it and he won. And that, and then that's sort of what first gave him recognition in the United States. And then when McDonald built that course, he actually used McKenzie's winning design design for the 18th hole at the Lido, uh, which was this very famous hole with this Island and you could, 
there's all these different options with different routes you can play to get to the green and um, strategically an absolutely brilliant hole. Um, and then that funny enough, that course was closed down in the early 1940s and has since just been resurrected hmm. in Wisconsin, a, a very prominent golf developer, um, Mike Kaiser and his family, the Kaiser family who they're builders of, pretty much the best golf resorts right now, abandoned dunes in Oregon and sand Valley and, and others around the world. Um, it had been his dream for a long time to restore this course called the Lido that, that when it was around was considered by many people, one of, or maybe the best course in the world. And because it had been lost, you know, uh, other people had been talking about this idea for years of like, well, could this course ever be brought back? Well, it couldn't be brought back on, on its original site. So they found this site where they had a resort out in the middle of Wisconsin. And, um, and they did all this research and built a 3D model of what the course ex looked like and then converted that into LiDAR data that they then used to help to feed into autonomous bulldozers to shape it. And then they finished shaping it by hand manually. But they recreated the Lido course it just opened for play a couple of months ago oh my goodness and with Mackenzie's hole the 18th hole you know, almost exactly as he drew it on his on uh, on that page that he submitted in 1914 to country life wow so that's in wisconsin yeah mm -hmm. okay so that's the resort is called sand valley in wisconsin the course is called lido yeah lido. that is awesome so that is so cool because that kind of takes us full circle then to kind of what Kind of what the whole point of this discussion is, because we're talking about this guy from 90 years ago um, being a great designer. But what happens oftentimes, even if you're not a golf expert, just just in life, you know, things get old. People change. They make modifications. People have changed these golf courses over the years, whether they just become extinct or whether they just modify them for whatever reason. But what we're seeing now is almost like a renaissance. People are becoming interested in these classic designs that he had. And that's what got you interested in him. And I just read an article from NBC from earlier this year where they're talking about three or four courses in California getting restored back to that kind of original Alistair McKenzie design. So why? Yeah. It's what's going on. Yeah, you're right. There has been a renaissance and it's been, you know, it's really started, you know, in the late 1990s and then has really picked up momentum in the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years where a lot of these clubs that were built during mostly during the 1920s, which was considered the golden age of golf course architecture. Um, because in, in those days, uh, the economy was booming, development was booming, um, really, I mean, all over, but especially in places like California. And, uh, and there was this group of architects that all emanated from that time frame that were just doing phenomenal work really interesting work and there's a lot of reasons why you know all these conditions were ripe for that type of work to be done at that time um, but what happened was you know starting the 1930s with the great depression that all came to a halt and the, the depression you know extended into the 1940s and then world war ii broke out and that really got us into the mid late forties. And so you had this essentially, it wasn't until the fifties that really 
development of golf courses really started again. And there had been this 20 plus year gap essentially in golf development. And most of the guys that were practicing in the twenties died in that period or really stopped practicing. And so when it became time to start building new courses again in the fifties, there were very few people around professional golf architects that, that kind of had a sense of the craftsmanship and the style and the philosophy that was so popular in the twenties. And as a result, between say the fifties, the 1950s and the 1990s, a lot of pretty mediocre to bad golf courses were built <laughs> and a lot of great. And, and, and during that same time frame, a lot of these famous courses from the 1920s were kind of butchered by clubs that didn't realize how special of a course they had yeah. and they had to make say infrastructure upgrades or, um, there was all these considerations for economics in the thirties and forties, you know, simplifying the golf course to make it more affordable to maintain and, uh, and then never recovering from that. And there was this trend in the 1950s and sixties where a lot of these clubs went hog wild and planted trees on every hole on the side of every fairway of every hole. And they just created all these bowling alleys, yep. which you know, and if you ask them at the time, their concept was beautification. They were trying to take these golf courses and beautify them by planting trees. And they weren't thinking in terms of the strategy and how it just really ruined the way that these brilliant courses were, were built and designed. And so um, it wasn't until really the, the 1990s that this renaissance started again, where people started looking back at these old clubs and saying, wow, like we had this, something very, very special. They'd find some old photographs or they'd find an old drawing and they'd realize how special the golf course they had and how it had been ruined in a lot of cases. And uh, slowly but surely, momentum built to try to restore back to, to these original designs. And, you know, of those great prolific architects of the, the golden age, you know, most people consider Mackenzie probably, you know, the, the top, the most famous of those. I mean, there were some other great architects as well, but Mackenzie is sort of the most well-known of, of the bunch. And the way I would sort of, it's not a perfect analogy, but for, for people that aren't really in the golf scene, um, Alistair Mackenzie was kind of like the Frank Lloyd Wright of golf course design. And, um, you know, and then sort of like maybe like the Frederick Law Olmsted of landscape architecture. Yeah, for sure. You know, he's sort of like the 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 preeminent practicer uh, practitioner in their field. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, all these clubs now the word is out. The word's been out the last you know 15, 20 years or so, and and these clubs have gotten people. You know, a lot of them have historians or historical committees now that are becoming interested in researching their heritage and uh, documenting what their course used to look like. And then, and then usually these projects start out very controversially. <laughs> and then by the end of them, mostly the membership is usually thrilled by the results. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting. That's, and that's what, it, like, as you alluded to, that's what I've spent the last 20 years of my career 
you know, primarily doing is restoring golf courses. Yeah. And so you've, you've been so interested in this and for all these, like you said, 15, 20 years, compiling all this information about Alistair McKenzie. Um, he, he does have a book out from, from 1920 about golf architecture. Um, I think there's even a secondary book, but what you've been able to do with your research is be able to compile it into a volume that you're calling the McKenzie reader that people can get their hands on today. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I published the McKenzie reader and it's sort of a compendium of 15 years of research um, where I compiled a lot of his writings that had not been published in either of his previous two books. So yeah, he had a very small book called golf architecture that was published in 1920. Then uh, just before he died in 1934, he had finished the manuscript for a book called The Spirit of St. Andrews. But because it was the Depression and um, essentially what happened is nobody published it. And uh, Mackenzie was, he, he never had any children of his own, uh, but his second wife had children from her previous marriage. She was widowed. And so he had stepchildren and step-grandchildren. Well, in the early 1990s, Mackenzie's step-grandson and his wife, they found the manuscript for the Spirit of St. Andrews. And they didn't really know what it was at first. And then they talked to a few people and they figured out what it was. And then they actually had it published in 1995. So those were his two books. The first was published in 1920. The second was published posthumously in 1995. So, but in between that time frame, from 1915 to 1934, when he died, call it that like 20 year window, he wrote a lot of articles for various publications all around the world, mostly golf publications, but some non-golf publications. Um, and he wrote on a variety of subject matter, you know, golf design, obviously, but agronomics, economics. Uh, a lot of military war camouflage type of stuff. Cause he had a deep interest in that, yeah. you know, medicine. And uh, so I compiled all these articles that he had written that had sort of been lost over time. And I, you know, over a 15 year period, I found a lot of these articles in various archives and libraries and just different random places all around the world. And um, I compiled those all together and that's sort of the, the foundation of the McKenzie Reader. And then I added in it, you know, a lot of photographs of different golf courses and architectural plans, different drawings of courses that he designed. So that's a very different book than his other two books. You know, it's sort of like a, I, I kind of think of it like the third in the trilogy of his books, you know. And so when I published that book, I tried to get inside of his head knowing him as well as I do, having researched him for 20 years now. Um, and I tried to publish it or I tried to present it in a way that he would have wanted it to look like, you know, if he were alive today. Publishing. That is awesome. You can get a kind of a glimpse of it on your, on the website, uh, alistairmckenzie.org. Um, I love the layout. It's a great design. Um, very uh, eye appealing, I guess, as Alistair McKenzie would have appreciated it to be. Um, it's laid out very yeah. So, yeah, as I was like, I spent a lot of time, I mean, I have a, as a historian, I have a, a big collection of historical golf books and there's some just beautiful old golf books that were published. And so 
I took a lot of inspiration from not only his books, but other beautifully done historical golf books and tried to present it in a way that feels like it would have been presented in say the 1920s. So it has a very kind of uh, historical feel to it. The book has a foreword by Ben Crenshaw, and I would recommend to people listening that if they want to learn more about um, uh, the doctor, you know, to, to look up maybe on YouTube, you can find a really nice Hall of Fame introduction uh, by Ben Crenshaw, and he just kind of highlights some of these uh, these big moments or these big accolades of, of, of Dr. McKenzie in his golf career, and not only just the things that he did, but why he did them. And, and the kind of impact that it has the, the people that are really interested in golf and uh, architecture. Um, so I recommend people checking that out. But the forward in your book is by Ben Crenshaw, which is really cool. Yeah, that was, that was uh, you know, I was really honored to have Mr. Crenshaw write the forward. Um, and, you know, I know that he's, of, of all sort of the modern professional golfers, he more than probably any other um, has such a deep interest and passion of golf course architecture and golf architecture history. And, and he is an architect himself. He and his business partner, Bill Coor, um, they're really the most people consider sort of the best modern day golf architects. They're, they're building the best golf courses today. Uh, but he has a deep appreciation for history and, and for Alistair McKenzie's work. And so yeah, I reached out to his agent and, and asked him if he'd be interested in writing the forward and he, you know, he obliged. And, and so that in the back of the book, there's a little section where I have some different essays by some other contemporary authors, some, some well-known architects and historians. Well, we thank you very much, Josh Pettit, for being with us on the Clay McKenzie podcast. Uh, as always, we encourage people to check out claymckenzie.org. If you want to get a copy of this book, alistairmckenzie.org, is that the best place to find it? Yep. Yeah, you can check us out on uh, the website or Instagram is McKenzie Institute. Um, oh, I should say, you know, what the the long term vision of the McKenzie Institute is we're, yeah. we're working toward building a museum that should be open in 2025. And that's where we'll showcase a lot of his work and um, his golf clubs and a lot of other interesting artifacts. And that will be in Monterey, California. Okay, so that is happening for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. And it'll be the Alistair McKenzie. The Alistair McKenzie Museum. Museum. Working title, yeah. Okay. And he, so real fast, let me just catch one last thing. So you, sure. you had a little trip to Scotland. You traveled up, you looked in, and you found sort of in your research, you found out where his parents were uh, up in the Highlands. Yeah, so McKenzie was born in just outside of Leeds in Yorkshire, England, but right. he loved to play up his Scottish heritage. His father's family was from a little town called Ned, way up in the Northwest Highlands. And his mother was from Glasgow, um, but he was born in, in England. But they would go up in the summertime and they would they would go way up into the Highlands for holiday. And um, so I found this little town called Ned, which isn't even really a town, to be honest. Um, the, the closest real town is called Loch Inver. And, uh, but in Ned is a, a very small little private cemetery on the top of this mountain that I hiked up to. And I found his family's gravesite with, uh, you know, the gravestone that has a bunch of people, Mackenzie's all inscribed 
on it. And, and actually, so Mackenzie's step-grandson, after they found the manuscript for the Spirit of St. Andrews in the early 1990s, he became fascinated with, you know, Mackenzie's history. And he, they went over there and they found the gravestone. That's how I found out about it. I don't think anybody else knows about it, to be honest. And they had somebody local inscribe Alistair Mackenzie's name on it because his family at all, their names were all on it. But he died in California in 1934 and he was cremated and his ashes were spread over the Pasatiempo golf course. So, um, so anyways, yeah, all those years later, they went back in the 90s and they had his name inscribed on the family gravestone. And then so I found that, which was really, really hard to find, but, uh, but I found it uh, and it was it was just a really neat, neat experience. And that part of the country, I mean, Scotland is just beautiful, but that part of the, the country way up in the Northwest Highlands is absolutely gorgeous. And I would highly recommend it to anybody. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story. Now a lot of people are going to know about it. <laughs> They'll all be out there checking if, it out. If you can find it. I Good luck. It's, <laughs> it's not easy to find. All right. Awesome. Well, again, we appreciate you being on the podcast. We hopefully you come back and we can talk further about some of these renovation projects that are taking place. I'd like to hear more about the museum and what's going on with that. And uh, as always, just promoting these things, Mackenzie related are, are, are excellent. And this is uh, quite a historical figure, a Renaissance man, so to speak. Uh, he was very uh, amazing in all of his all of his work, really. So we appreciate you being here with us. Um, I appreciate having me very much and I appreciate yeah the work that you're doing I think it's very very fascinating so and I'm looking forward to to learning more about it as well cool thanks a lot the Clun McKenzie podcast is produced by Jared Smart 